0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Evans.
1: Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German, land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. But in the interests of saving lives, the ceasefire began yesterday to be sounded along all the fronts. And uh, our dear Channel Islands are also to be freed today. The German war is therefore at an end. After years of intense preparation, Germany hurled herself on Poland at the beginning of September 1939. And in pursuance of our guarantee to Poland and in common with the French Republic, Great Britain, the British Empire and Commonwealth of Nations declared war upon this foul aggression. After gallant France had been struck down, we from this island and from our united empire,
2: the Victory in Europe Day is the day celebrating the formal acceptance by the allies of World War II of Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces on Tuesday, May 8, 1945, marking the end of World War II in Europe. Several countries observe public holidays on this day each year under many names. Some refer to it as Victory Over Fascism Day, Liberation Day or simply Victory Day. In the United Kingdom, it is often abbreviated as VE Day, a term which existed as early as September 1944, in anticipation of victory. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. And wow, it's been a while, but this COVID-19 stuff, whew, I know you guys are getting over it and tired of it as much as I am. Um, You know, hey... <laughs> it's just the world we're living in but real quick, I've been uh, reaching out to some larger companies who've been around and who contributed to the war effort in the uh, 1940s and I have one that I'm in communication with I really hope it comes through and we can bring you some very, very good inside baseball if you will, on this huge corporation and products that you know and seen in your daily life and how some of it was invented during the war And the efforts that they went through to get their product out to the soldiers on the front line. Once again, that's some of the stuff I've been working on. Uh, But obviously with the COVID-19, there's a lot of people not going to work in the media department of these large corporations. And so it's kind of hard to get a hold of people right now, but we're working on it. We're going to continue to bring you great content. And the reason we're able to bring you great content is, one, because of you the people we like to call the OG5 who sign up for the Patreon page, who use that dollar a month, the $3.50 a month, or sign up for the $7 a month plan. If you sign up for that $7 a month plan, you do get the free t-shirt after a month two. So thank you so much for those guys. We call them the OG5. Thank you guys so much for your support. And um, there is a Patreon-exclusive podcast that gets uploaded to the Patreon page. So if you want some more content from the Digital 410 Network, um, not only do we have the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, the Fail to Fail podcast, which, by the way, coming up this week, we got Dot, a guy I worked with in radio who also toured with Brooke Hogan and has been the touring DJ with Jamie Foxx for the last 14 years. He's been on Saturday Night Live. He's done the Tonight Show. He is the resident MC, the resident DJ at the Miami Heat basketball games. So check that out. It's coming up this week. That's on failtofail.com or, as always, d-410.com. But the um, best way to keep up the date on all that stuff is through Patreon. Um, greatly support all of those of you who support us that way. Uh, new t-shirts coming out. little sneak review. I am working on creating some t-shirts. I don't want to get the cat out of the box, if you will, or the K-ration out of the box. little hint. Uh, so keep your eye out on the WTSPWorldWar2.com for those new t-shirts coming up. Uh, WTSP World War 2 stickers. There's Loki saying hi. He's underneath the door. He wants in. But nope can't come in cat you're too loud uh real quick we got wtsp die cut stickers uh the, right now the ones that look like the lucky strike logo those going to be available for purchase here real soon any color you want i can cut them up make them send them to you send them your way loki really wants it here but that's all right hi loki And last but not least, as always, thanks to ACT Computers. ACT Computers of Southwest Florida has been providing IT services to all of Southwest Florida since 2004. And we have been extremely busy during the COVID-19, especially when it comes to securing people's networks with two-form authentication, with uh, remote access, online backups, all that good stuff. So as always, give ACT Computers a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And they can help you remotely, even if with minor computer problems. Anything you have going on with your computer, as long as you have internet access, they can help you out. So give them a call or go to their website, act-capecoral.com or 239-283-1120. And if you haven't done so yet, please check out our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube.com and search for Digital 410 or simply go to d-410.com or even WTSPWorldWar2.com. Find any of the YouTube videos posted on our pages. Click on them find our link and subscribe. Most recently, if you aren't aware, uh, we've run, wow, part eight of our um, building of a World War II, well, a replica crate, and I'm converting to look like a World War II crate with the express purpose as serving as a podcast studio in a box so that we don't have the embarrassing issue like we had up in uh, Lakeland, Georgia this year, where I forgot my microphones because I rushed to get all my equipment packed up. So I'm making a self-contained podcast studio in a crate. So all I have to do after I pack up all my gear to go to event is simply grab this one crate and I will be rested well. I don't have to worry about it. I know that when I crack that crate open, everything I need is in there. All I got to simply do is plug up my laptop, plug the crate into the wall, hook up the microphones and we're a go, but everything's stored, everything's self-contained. We're getting close to being done on that project. We have a nice series. We're on episode eight right now. And in each one of those those podcasts, those video vlogs, um, there's little other looks into what's going on in my life right now as well. So the whole video, the whole 10-minute video is not me working on a box. Uh, Usually half of it is. But the cool thing is, is one of the things we've discussed in those videos is a way to find affordable objects on eBay using generic search terms. And what I mean by that is you don't want to be super specific when looking for items on eBay because when you use super specific items, you're going to find the item that is posted by someone who knows exactly what it is, therefore knows exactly what it's worth. And, of course, it's going to have a higher starting bid price. So, for example, if you want to find yourself a black enamel canteen to do an early Marine Corps impression, don't type in black enamel canteen roll 1942, yada, yada, yada. Because you're going to find them, but they're going to have a very high starting price or a super high buy-it-now price use generic terms like world war two canteen. Yes. You're going to have to parse and sort through a lot of them, but you'll find some, I saw one just go a week ago, I think for final sale price is $35 plus shipping and handling. Um, I didn't pick it up cause I already have one, so I didn't need it. Um, but on this video, there are a few items I have shown and I've gotten for super cheap. One of them, I'll just give you a quick hint. It is a, um, Field back, I guess you would say, I got it for $5 and like $4 shipping and handling. Um, we'll talk about that in the video. I just recently, and I asked if you guys think I should open it. Look, I know that they didn't package this stuff in plastic back in World War II. My theory is that someone bought it in bulk, uh, partitioned it out, made it in nice little packages to sell at an army surplus store. But basically, I think I paid $20, no shipping. So basically, if you take the 5 to $10 for shipping, I paid $10 for the set. Claims to be new old stock, but it's wrapped in plastic, and it's um, and I haven't opened it yet. You'll see it in the video. Comment whether or not you think we should open it. But it's eight new old stock M1 Garin clips, eight cardboard sleeves, and a new old stock never issued bandolier. So um, I picked that up, like I said, for 19 bucks, no shipping. So after you roll over the shipping costs, I paid like 12 bucks for it. And coming up here, I'm working on a video right now. I'm starting a restoration project on some EE8B field telephones. Um, Picked up some really cheap off eBay. They're pretty beat, but a little hint, perhaps I got them working? I don't know. you have to check out the YouTube channel coming up this week. But uh, yeah, please like and subscribe on our YouTube channel, and we'll get that thing moving more. We are working diligently on providing content for you guys on the YouTube channel and bringing more cool World War II stuff. And not to mention, if you haven't seen it on our World War, not to mention if you haven't seen it on the WTSP World War II page, our new feature "History Through Photos." I'm taking photos of my original World War II items, uh, trying to track down some descriptions on the manufacturers or where they came from on the internet and post them up with some nice high definition photos on the page to hold you guys over in between episodes. And so go check that out at wtspworldwar 2com Dateline May 5th. I know today's the 13th as I'm recording this, but um, I've been recording. I've actually done the interview that we're getting ready to go into probably two weeks ago. And so this one episode is going to kind of cover the first half of May and all the things that happened. So we're going back 78 years ago on May 5th the first Navajo code talkers joined the Marine Corps on May 5th 1942 29 men arrived at the recruit depot at recruit Depot San Diego for basic training in the Marine Corps they would go on to develop and implement the unbreakable code that we they would go on to develop and implement the unbreakable code that was used across the Pacific Theater in World War II. on one which helped make one which on World War II, one which helped make, one which helped mask the movements of American forces from Guadalcanal to Tarawa, Pelu, and onward to Iwo Jima, these men were the first Navajo code talkers. However, according to a Facebook post by the Southern Navajo Nation News, it was on this day, 78 years ago today, they swore the oath of enlistment. You can read the rest of this story on our Facebook page. Um, Just go to Facebook, look for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. But, yep, this month, um, whether you go with the official news that this was the first day they arrived at the Recruit Depot or if you want to go by what the Southern Navajo Nation News says, possibly this month was, or that day, mind you, on May 4th was the day they signed their oath to the Marine Corps. And we kind of have a theme going along for this episode, you'll see here momentarily. Some sad news. The last surviving member of the original 1943 Rockford Peach Girls baseball team passes away. Braintree, Massachusetts. The last surviving member of the original 1943 Rockford Peach Girls professional baseball team has passed away. Mary Pratt passed away on May 6th at the age of 101. Imagine that. Born shortly after World War I. World War II rolls around. You become a Rockford Peach. You see that. You see the Korean War, Vietnam War, Gulf War, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, 9 11, and COVID 19. That's a lot of history, not to mention cell phones, computers, all that. But she passed away at the great old age of 101. Pratt played for the All American Professional Girls Baseball League from 1943 to 1947. Pratty, as she was nicknamed, was a pitcher who batted and threw left-handed. During her time with the league, Pratt played for the Rockford Peaches and the Kenosha Comets.
3: After the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, pride and patriotism rose to new heights throughout the United States. Americans surged to enlist in all branches of the U.S. military, and women wanted to serve their country with the same enthusiasm as their male counterparts. Jovi Johnson Roundtree, who would go on to become one of the first 39 black women officers in the United States Army, worked with Eleanor Roosevelt, Congresswoman Edith Norris Rogers, and Mary McLeod Buthane to draft the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, WAAC, resolution that was presented to Congress. With support from General George Marshall, the bill passed both the House of Representatives and then the Senate in May of 1942. With the WAAC in place, The War Department announced that it would follow Army policy and admit black women with a 10% quota. The Army wasn't the only branch where women wanted to serve, and other women's units were established. Women who wanted to help the Navy join the waves. The Coast Guard had the SPAR, the Air Force had WASP, and the Marine Corps had the WR. The WAAC, however, was the only branch to allow black women from its inception. Despite this fact, recruitment of black women proved difficult. In July of 1943, it was announced that the women of WAAC would be classified under the same ranks as soldiers, a big victory for women's equality. The unit name changed to the Women's Army Corps, WAC. While the WAC was by far where most black women served, it wasn't the only place. World War II saw about 500 black nurses in the army. The waves eventually saw almost 100 black women and the Coast Guard's spar had five black women who served. The Army Nurse Corps initially followed the War Department guidelines of the quota system, which severely limited the number of black women admitted. It wasn't until a severe nursing shortage that the quota was lifted. These women not only faced the scrutiny and prejudice of friends and family for wanting to join the military, they also had to deal with discrimination and segregation. It was challenging and often thankless but they saw the importance of their work and persevered
2: and joining us right now from the phones, continuing our long distance social distancing as we here at the what's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been doing for the last three and a half years. Anyhow, so it's nothing new to us. I uh, follow this young lady on Instagram because well, to be quite honest, she has some fantastic uh, photos going on with her living history and uh, more th- interestingly enough, more than just World War II, but we'll get into that here shortly. Join us via the phone is Stella Kappler. Stella, how are we doing today?
0: I'm good. Thank you so much for having
2: me. Well, thank you for coming on. Now, before you came on, or just a few minutes ago, we are talking about you live in West Virginia, and I asked you about uh, the New River Gorge and whether or not you've ever gone rafting down it, and you said your mom used to be a um, guide when she was younger, and you guys have been down it quite a few times. And I had a flashback back to high school, Um, took a trip to, uh, West Virginia, went, uh, rafting down the new river gorge. I think it was the lower and it had been raining a while. And I think the very, very first rapid we hit, our guide fell out. Oh, (laughs) so you got, you got a boat full of high schoolers who've all from Columbus, Ohio. Rafting's not our strong point. Uh, luckily we were able to slow it down and get them back into the boat. But other than that, it was a great time.
0: Yeah, that that actually happens more than you would think. Just
2: when the river's that high, it's just so unpredictable. And there's a, another funny story because you know, obviously, when high school uh, boys will be boys. One of the other this is and the funny thing is this is part of a um, young life church uh, excursion, and so we had pl- you know, two busloads full of us, and uh, one of the group of guys found a dead fish along the bank after we stopped for lunch and decided to take it, put it in the boat of one of the. Uh, that the girls are riding in underneath the, the inflatable seat in the middle. Ooh. And so about uh, 45 minutes into that trip, they were all getting sick wondering where the fish mouth came from.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure that went over, went over wonderfully.
2: Right there in that West Virginia humidity.
0: Oh, yeah. It's It's terrible.
2: So as you may or may not know, one of the things we like to do on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast when we bring on a new, um, new interviewee is to have them give us a brief description about uh, themselves, where they live, where they grew up, how they grew up, and then most importantly, what got them interested in living history, et cetera. So if you don't mind, give us a little background on you.
0: All right. Um, well, I was born and raised here in Fayetteville, West Virginia. And my family always had an interest in history. I remember from when I was little, my dad always had an old vintage vehicle. And, you know, we grew up watching a brother or a so, you know, we, we always kind of were interested in that. And, um, my whole family, we were all homeschooled. So we spent a lot of time, you know, with the family in, you know, we're right by the national parks. So we would spend a lot of time out doing that kind of stuff. And then one year for Christmas. My mom got my dad tickets to a World War II reenactment in Reading, Pennsylvania, and we went up there, and then that's kind of when it unlocked a whole new level from just vintage to seeing this historical reenactment stuff and realizing that was something we could do. So we all just kind of fell in love with it and have been addicted ever since.
2: You know, there's something about that bug that once it bites you, um, especially, you know, it's just one you're you're never financially the same ever again but it's just people who don't get it they don't get it and they're like what is it about this why do you care so much and oh yeah and i try to tell people i have an unexplainable unquenchable thirst for history and um i got bad news for you the older you get the more that digs into you so um you're you're at a young age now just wait until you get older it's you're really going to be knee deep into it if you're not already there now
0: oh yeah oh yeah i i know i know it's only going to get worse from here <laughs>
2: What is, um, you, like I, I kind of said at the intro, you do more than just World War Two. You have a vast variety of uh, living history eras in which you do. Which one is uh, one of your favorites?
0: Oh, I think I would have to say World War Two era is probably my favorite, just because that's what I started out in um, and so far have the most knowledge in. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started branching out into 1890s and... Edwardian and Victorian era kind of stuff. And then from there, I went into the World War One military kind of thing, which, you know, that's, that's still somewhat new to me, but I'm going to have to go with World War Two, just because it's the first thing that I was really passionate about
2: When you go out to a museum or to a living history event and you set up a display, what is the? Because everybody has their strong points. For me, example, is PTO. I have had people on here who specialize in field kitchens, um, you know, uh, telephones, communications. Some people do the home front stuff. What is your preferred um, setup or display? And, you know, uh, what are you passionate about? And what would you? um, What do you normally share with people as they come through your um, your display?
0: So it, it depends what I'm portraying at each event. I usually do a different impression, but my primary um, impression is auxiliary territorial service, um, which is basically the British equivalent of the WAC. And I usually portray either a dispatch rider or um, a driver. So I have a, for my 16th birthday, I got a 1935 Hillman as my first car. Nice. So I, to events and I have the proper, you know, driving kit. And that's kind of my strong point is, you know, giving the background on the drivers and that they would, they, they would just, um, do stuff like that. And then there were dispatch riders on motorcycles and things. So I sort of set up a display with that. And if I'm not doing that, I'm usually doing, um, like land army and we'll set up kind of a farm type thing that's more interactive with the public and not as much just display it kind of goes a level beyond that. And then the other thing would be my medical stuff which I do for World War 1 and that is very, you know, full immersion. We set everything up, you know, like it's 1918 and just do demonstrations for the most part for people to more watch than interact with. So
2: where did you source your World War 1 medical um uniform at i'm looking at now with the picture of you and the um looks like a a labradoodle do you you, you source those to the regular places because obviously at the front man the line all those places they primarily deal with let's be honest men's stuff um you know unless you're buying a pair of hbts and a very size small pair of um rough outs where does where does a young lady go who wants to get the stuff that's designed for women to have the right cut, the right uniform, the right accuracy, because that's what we're all about. We're all about getting our loadouts, our kits, our impressions as accurate as possible. And I have to imagine, um, at least here in the States, um, there's less options for women to choose. Do you find yourself buying from a lot of overseas places?
0: Yes. Um, Actually, my Canadian uniform was all completely made for me through my and they are all up in Canada. I'm
2: sorry, um, cut out through who?
0: My entire entire unit is up in Canada. So they make the uniforms up there just primarily for that group. And then all of the World War II stuff, like you said, it is very difficult to source anything. There was one company overseas that at some point in time was reproducing some of the um, British service uniforms, but as of now they've, kind of stopped that so we primarily have to use originals which are really hard to source from over here
2: well it's a hard to source from but i would imagine the obviously everybody from the 40s 30s was a lot smaller than we are now but um i would imagine being a, a young lady now is probably a little easier to find vintage clothing because one there's a vintage clothing market or there has been for years for women whereas now for guys it's just now coming around but in the case yeah. of me um being six foot five, 214 pounds, there's very few original clothing options for me. Um, yeah, finding a class A uniform, good luck. You know, obviously, I get my reproduction wool trousers and all that from the normal sources, but right now, trying to find a class A jacket that doesn't cost as much as a down payment on a used car that would fit me is insane. And so, do you find, um, with the availability of at least some vintage clothing stores out there that you can find some original stuff easier than actual finding reproduction?
0: Yes. Um, to be honest, I actually do have more luck with originals as far as vintage clothing goes, because I'm, I'm very short. I'm five foot two. So I kind of fit that, that original stuff. Sometimes it's easier than reproductions because I will have to, you know, shorten things to get them to fit properly.
2: You were saying earlier that you do a lot of uh, the British women's um, auxiliary-based stuff and you know um, roles. I would imagine that, for example, here in Florida, you know, a lot of the young ladies who do living history and reenactment, they do you know the wax and the the nursing and the local home front stuff. And I never really thought about it, but before, but if you kind of take your impression over across the pond, that opens you up to a more variety you know, obviously we have the French resistance every once in a while, but if you take it across the pond because they were in the war, I mean, they were up to it. They were getting bombed. It probably opens up your options as far as what sort of impression and history you want to portray. Whereas if you're doing the American women's side, you're kind of limited due to their roles because obviously, you know, we shipped women over there and we had women serving overseas, but that's a lot different than when your country's one getting bombed and invaded. That opens up the playing field even further, I would imagine.
0: Completely. And um, on that note as well, they were in it so much sooner than the American women. They were there, you know, right away. And actually by, by mid to late war, they were conscripting women for service if they were single with no children. So they were being drafted um, into a branch, whether it be Navy, Air Force, Army, that kind of thing. So And also, they were sent everywhere. I mean, they were in Egypt, Palestine. There were actually some auxiliary territorial service women serving in the U.S. as well, so they were just all over the place doing anything and everything. So it's definitely very interesting to be able to educate people on something that's kind of underrepresented here.
2: I'm trying to figure out a way to broach this next part delicately along with the topic that we're on, but obviously... If you're a young lady at that time in a country that's not only being bombed, but, you know, being invaded by foreign forces, obviously the women are in, have that secondary delicate position they're in, if you know what I mean, as far as um, what could happen to them. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure that greatly um, helps with the desire to pick up arms and fight because you're not only are you defending your country, you're defending your family, but you were defending yourself at self at the most personal level. And it has, there's gotta be stories out there where young women just like, Hey, I'm not going to be a victim. I'd rather die like the old saying, I'd rather die, you know, on my feet than surviving on my knees.
0: Completely. Yeah. And I mean, that's when you read these personal accounts, I mean, there were women lying about their age to go, you know, serve on anti-aircraft batteries and things with the guys just to get out there and do what they could.
2: Yeah I mean there's so much as far as the female contribution to history there's so much that's not covered and and that's why I always jump at the chance whenever I find someone who's in the hobby especially someone who's so detailed oriented in doing what you do as far as not only you know just your photos let me ask you about I noticed you have a link on your website and for I'm sure this will be a great help because I see a lot of the young ladies who are doing living history around here they try to find some footwear that fit them but it's usually some modern equivalent that looks like a pair of boondockers um sorry not boondockers but rough outs but they got a zip up side and pointy toes you have a website are you associated with that or is that just one you use a lot that's on your instagram page
0: that is, that is one that I use a lot. A very good friend of mine started the company, and she specializes in American women's service shoes and basically does anything and everything you would need for any American um, impression. And I do actually have, I do um, a whack impression. So I have one American kit, and I bought shoes for that, and they are, they're top-notch. They are perfect, they look super legit, and they're in modern foot sizes, which I know helps so many people out.
2: And that website, for those of you listening, um, is All Heels On Duty. And obviously that's heels like is in high heels. So A-L-L-H-E-L-L-S onduty.com. And obviously I'm just quickly browsing through here. And like you said, as far as finding modern-day shoes, because, yeah, you can probably, if you really, really search and pay the money, you can find vintage stuff, but you're going to risk the leather, you know, not being pristine and the price you know once you put a high value on some of those shoes you're really not going to want to wear them out in the field and you know and totally destroy them
0: oh completely i i have some originals for world war one and world war two but that's purely on for a collection i could never i couldn't bring myself to wear them out in the mud or something and risk damaging them in any way with their age. so i highly recommend if you're going to get anything reproduction for it to be footwear
2: Now, I'm going to um, obviously claim some ignorance here, but that's what we do. Through ignorance comes education. You have a series of photos on here, which for the uninitiated and uneducated looks like the equivalent of a women's park ranger. What exactly is a WLA?
0: WLA is Women's Land Army. So Mm -hmm. that is... Actually, um, the U.S. had Women's Land Army too. And when everyone was sent away... With the food shortages over in the UK, they were basically just farming and running these farms, um, and just getting food to supply. There was also a timber corps to help with lumber, so that's that's a type of farm thing that was like conscripted through the War Department.
2: Do you, is that something you recently got into, or is that something that have uh, you done some events and? Um done some education
0: um, I've been on with
2: the women's land army for about two years. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, um, stretching right now because as you're talking about this, I just had a flashback of a Netflix show about the women's land army. And I'm like trying to Google it as I'm talking to figure out what the name of the show was. Um, I don't know if you had seen it or not. Um,
0: I think it's, Land Girls. what is it? Land Girls?
2: Uh, yes, I believe so. Uh, yeah, uh, the ladies, yeah, yeah I think, According to Netflix. Yeah, I think it's Land Girls. I watched like on I think I watched the first few episodes of it. Um there's another one that was out for a while, which was all right, which was Bomb Girls. Uh, yeah, it was called Land Girls. And, you know, those shows may not be super great as far as historical stuff, but I, I kinda would assume that it's a good place for uh, women getting into the hobby to kind of look to get an idea of what the clothing styles were and then obviously use normal sources to get them as more accurate as they possibly can.
0: Yeah, definitely. And one of my, one of um, my things that kind of got me into it was watching old movies and newer movies that were set in a historical time. And that's kind of what inspired me to get into it as well. Um, One of my favorite films is the aviator. So just seeing that clothing, it's just, it kind of, really inspired me to just want to do it as much as I could. So yeah, I definitely recommend watching any of those shows to get into it.
2: WGN had a show out for a while called Manhattan. And obviously as the name implies, it's about the Manhattan project and they took a lot of artistic licensing as they tend to do. But that was another show that was really cool because obviously all these um, scientists, they had their wives and girlfriends with them when they're living out there and on the farm. And I kind of thought that was also a good show to show the styles, the civilian styles of the time, showing the fact that women were really in the turbans at the time and the different styles of shoes and, and dress. And I always thought, you know, despite what people may say about the plot line and the storyline, that was another good one that uh, could be used as far as finding clothing styles.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I saw maybe one or two episodes of that one. I mean, I would actually like to watch it because I've heard really good things, but Um, One that I always watched was Home Fires. Um, It's no longer being broadcasted, but I think it's on Amazon Prime. And it is set on the British home front, so it gives an insight into the British civilian style, which was much more – it definitely is a bit more 1930s, more understated than the American 1940s style.
2: Do you – I would imagine, I mean, being as involved and into the multiple different styles, do you, um, at all toy around with doing your own sewing, doing your own designing, or do you strictly uh, leave that up to people who put more time into it?
0: I do actually. Um, I'm still somewhat new to it, but, um, I made some of my stuff for land army. I don't think I have any photos of it up yet, but I made the khaki drill jacket and I'm going to be working on a pair of overalls here soon. But I'm, I'm just starting to kind of reach out into that and try to take my hand at it and see what we can do. But I, I definitely would like to get into it more because it can be very expensive to just have things made and, it's a lot easier if you can just
2: do it yourself. Well, I know there's a lot of, we have a lot of male reenactors and and some female reenactors who listen to this podcast. I'm sure a lot of the males have been trying to find a way to get their significant others involved. And, but obviously, as you know, to spend a weekend at a living history event, you surely can't be walking around in a pair of Nikes and modern day clothes. And so, um, and kind of, you know, with every bad thing that comes along, there's some great things that come from it. And one of the, cool things that i'm seeing i heard like walmart all their sewing machines are sold out because people are at home making masks i'm sure a lot of those people are people who already had a prev previous knowledge of how a sewing machine works but pardon me hopes and praise that there's like grandmothers or mothers out there showing their young daughters how to do this stuff and i'm hoping maybe there's a resurgence of sewing and crocheting that comes along after all this is over and with Definitely. all with all that rambling being said, you said you're you know you're kind of getting into making your own uniforms and jackets. Is there a source material website, a, a blog, a Pinterest page where uh, people can go out and find the um, what's the word I'm looking for the uh, patterns to, for making this stuff?
0: Yeah, actually, Etsy has a lot of good sources for vintage and reproduction patterns where they'll just take, you know, a pattern from the 1940s and copy it in multiple sizes. And a lot of them are actually ones that you can just print at home, which helps a lot. And then, of course, there's original ones. And then um, in my unit, we actually took an original Land Army coat and drafted a pattern off of it to make the jackets that we wear so there's a lot of different ways to do it. And as far as fabric goes, that's more of a personal preference. Um, I know Joanne's has a lot of stuff and we, depending what we're making, we'll order swatches from just wherever we can find stuff. Just, just see what matches an original the best.
2: You know, that's kind of one of the nice thing with modern day technology. And I know at the front star doing it about two years ago, um, you know, we're all kind of allergic to wool when we first get started, but after you wear it long enough, you kind of get used to it. But then there's those people whose skin just yeah. will not let them get used to it. And so I know at the front mm-hmm. makes some quality. Um, I was going to say wool. Quality, oh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I just completely drew a blank. Uh, flannel. Not flannel, fleece. Yes, yeah, it's a fleece. It looks like wool, yeah. but it's not. I think it's fleece.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh.
2: Yeah, they're making... Uh, basically nice quality fleece and other um, synthetic materials that look pretty spot on to the wool stuff, but without the uh, conflicting issues to the skin. And I'm sure that's something that opens up more possibilities whenever you're have the ability and the talent to make your own uniforms. Definitely. What is your normal everyday counterpart think of your hobby?
0: Um, Well, my family is very into it, and my boyfriend as well. He Actually, I met him at a reenactment. Nice.
2: um,
0: And honestly, we we actually came to our town last year about hosting an event here, and they were all for it. And, you know, sometimes some people are, like you said, they're all in or they're all out. But we've we've had so many people be so accepting and open and wanting to try it, Um, just, you know, having a bigger interest than I would have thought in it. Sure. So it's
2: it's great. You know, and not to beat a dead horse with my audience, but I've said this umpteen times over the last year or so. I really got to give credit to um, the cosplay community as far as making what we do more socially acceptable. You know, there's always Mm -hmm. kind of been a stigma to it. Oh, you dress up in weird 1930s clothes and go out in the field. Whereas now (laughs) with the younger adults who grew up watching Big Bang Theory and, and all that, who cosplays at an all time high. So it kind of makes it a little easier, at least socially, what we do to um, go out and do it. And and it makes, I think it, it makes when you, like you said, you go to a town or, you know, municipality and suggest, hey, here's what we want to do. Um, it's a little easier for them to wrap their minds around and get behind.
0: Yeah, completely. And I know one big thing for our town as well that just made them jump on board is doing it for the vets. We had a very big veteran appreciation program you know, with our events that we did here in my town and, you know, we had veterans coming up and just thanking us, telling them that this was just such a great thing. And their family saying they're finally getting some recognition. So I think that definitely helps people wrap their head around it too, is just seeing these people get the recognition they deserve and being honored and everything like that.
2: Where do you do a majority of your events at?
0: Uh, Most of them are in Pennsylvania. So, most of my events are about a
2: six to eight hour drive. Why don't you ever drive the other direction? There's always a lot of things going on down here in Florida, Georgia, Alabama. Um, I don't know if you have a world war two, uh, Marine Corps impression or, you know, even, um, first aid or anything like that. But, uh, for Morgan, we've been, the, that scene's been picking up a lot over the last two years. Um, we just did a second annual event in Lakeland, Georgia this year. And I know we're going to be doing yeah. another one and. You know, Florida's getting really hard right now. I don't know. Um, one of the things we've been suffering from, and it's been going on since the last mass shooting we've had down here, um, all the Florida state parks, all the ones that are actually run and financed through the state of Florida, they have put a moratorium on any live firing of weapons that use brass shell casings. Oh. So that basically yeah. leaves... Spanish-American War open Civil War, Revolutionary War. But once mm-hmm. you get, the you know, anything that uses brass shell casings, and you know as well as I do, we live in historians. We don't mind the fact that we can't do weapons demos, but we live in a, you know, a world where people, they like to have a, you know, they like to see the bang bangs and hear the weapons demos and seeing the reenactments. and And what we have seen is, you know, some of the numbers, as far as the public attendance, have gone down because we can't do those, those um, firing events.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, pu- demonstrations are definitely something that grabs the public's attention more than anything.
2: Yeah, it's it's um, it's getting rough. Now you said you guys went to your local municipality about putting on an event. Is there a particular? Is it just across the board? Or is there a particular event you want to? focus on a certain battle or is it just anything World War II related what's the theme or the outline you guys are trying to put together obviously what what's going on now probably put a big damper on that and it's probably on a back burner but what was your uh, core goal at that point
0: well we did the event um last year and we were hoping to make it an annual thing but like you said with everything going on you know it's been postponed so we're hoping to bring it back for next year but we just did Something where it was more of just a timeline event for World War II so that we could leave it open to anyone trying to participate that has, you know, home front or wanted to do, let's say, North Africa and someone wanted to do Italy just so, you know, everyone can do their own thing. And we we just set it up like that with a lot of stuff since it was a first year thing, but eventually we would like to expand and get more demonstrations out. Um, We had some people come and do live performances and swing dance lessons. So, and we had a really good turnout for the first year. So we're definitely hoping to bring it back.
2: Now I know uh, like a week ago you participated in one of these what we're seeing because we're seeing these in all across the board, whether it's stand up comedians, um obviously you watch any of the late night shows, they're all doing them from home, but you participated in one of these live stream reenactment type um living history um videos. How did that go?
0: It went really well. Um actually a friend of mine that um I reenact with, we share a tent together at events, so um she had this idea for us to start doing these with everything going on where we can't get out. So we've been doing a couple and trying to make it a regular thing, but it's really fun and people seem to really like it. Um, I know it's really hard. A lot of women struggle to try and get the hair figured out because it can be very difficult to grasp at first. Then once you have it down, it's it's kind of a routine, but you know that seemed to help a lot of people figure out the authentic hair and makeup if they were just getting into
1: it
2: yeah i i I think young women don't realize the hours i mean obviously you guys put a lot of hours in the morning getting your makeup on now but compared to what i'm trying to do the math on your your age group uh what would have been my mom but your your grandparents and your great-grandparents what your grandmothers had to do with sleeping with the rollers and whether they go soft rollers or hard rollers which all that's you know, my sister used to do all that stuff when when she was younger, and I'll give you yeah. a, I'll give you a a hint. Uh, well, not a hint, but an example. Last year, I had the um, pure luck and benefit to do some background acting in the new production of currently in post production, supposed to be out sometime this year of the remake of well the television series remake of the Right Stuff. Oh, okay. And I was in the pilot, and then the New Year's Eve episode. And when we showed up for wardrobe, obviously all the women had to have the 1950s hair. And so we're all showing up at six in the morning and you have all the women lined up with the hard curlers, the soft curlers are waiting in line, waiting for makeup. And they're all like yeah. tag teaming trying to get everybody's curlers out and, and all that stuff. Yeah. And it's like, they're talking about how insane it was and how it, it hurts to sleep on them and, and how they couldn't imagine doing it. It's like, well. Scant 40 years ago that's how that was how it was done every single night and so not only did you have to spend the time in exactly. the morning you had to dedicate time to it the night before
0: exactly yeah
2: and i would imagine the makeup was completely different then too. obviously right
0: yeah it is it it's a lot less than you see now as far as you know trends of makeup go it was a little more simple especially in wartime but you know it's it's still um, time consuming the mascara was very different it was in a cake form most of the time which is very interesting to have it in a solid block and not like in a tube so everything's kind of different and you kind of have to get used to using things in a different way than you're used to but it's, it's really interesting and a good learning experience
2: Obviously, a man, I'm a guy, and I don't know most of the stuff, but I'm trying to get the information out there for uh, once again, you know, young ladies and women who are trying to get into this hobby, whether it's because they have an interest or they're tired of hearing their, you know, husband or boyfriend nagging about them not showing interest in their hobby. <laughs> is there a good um, location or source to get some reproduction quality makeup of that style? Yes. Designate um,
0: Cosmetics is actually a a reproduction company out in California and they do a lot of different stuff by decade. So, you know, it's easy to pick out, they do powder foundations and a lot of lipstick that is by decade with, you know, nice background history stories. And they use original lipstick to match to the colors. So everything is really accurate and it's really nice stuff. I, it's personally what I use.
2: Most living historians, um, you know, I often tell people who, well, what's the difference between reenacting and li- living history? Well, obviously reenacting, we're reenacting a battle, whereas living history is kind of like if anybody's ever been to a, a convention or an expo and you're walking mm-hmm. around and you have people standing at these tables and they've got like 30 seconds to sell their wares or to get your attention to come over there and look at their table to possibly buy some of their goods. They have a mm-hmm. well-rehearsed, well-written, well-retold story, well-committed to memorize story, at least the good ones do. And we're all kind of the same. You know, you you start going to the event and you you listen to what people around you or people in your units are saying and you kind of learn it and you're at home researching. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, most of your leisure reading is something historical based. And we all have either a story or an event or a person, something that we find super interesting. Um, A lot of us try to find something that's not talked about or told on every single episode of any show you might find on History Channel or Military Channel. Is there a particular person, event, or um, thing historically that you usually try to focus with and talk about people when they walk by your display to get their attention that you would like to share with our audience that you think maybe didn't get talked about
3: enough?
0: I personally think that the biggest thing that's pretty underrepresented is the Canadian Nursing Sisters of World War I out of the things that I portray and there's actually a book, it's called Wounded. And it was the first thing recommended for me to read. And it just kind of jumps right into that. And you really, you know, I didn't even realize they were out there in 1914, like right at the beginning, right behind the front lines, just taking care of these guys. And really like the first women, you know, out there doing this during World War I when it was still such a new concept and saying they were in the Boer War and everything. So... I think that's a very underrepresented brand that I personally am just amazed by and really try to kind of push it out there and get more people to kind of just see what what this is where it's kind of hidden.
2: You may have more access to it due to your connection with people who are based out of Canada but I was as you were talking about you know the World War 1 stuff I think even in World War II Canada, especially when it comes to movies, television shows, like I said, you may have better access to it because of the people you know and associate with, but I almost feel Canada is greatly missed, under, underrepresented in a lot of this history.
0: Definitely. Definitely. I'm actually, um, an impression that I'm currently putting together is the World War II counterpart of my World War I impression. So I'm working on another Canadian nursing sister's impression for casualty clearing stations at D-Day and in Normandy, and in England. So just anywhere, just trying to put together something like that. And we'll be doing field dressing stations and just a bunch of different stuff like that.
2: Do you, When you do your field dressing stations, I know a lot of people like to, well, not a lot, but maybe some of them like to incorporate the fake blood, but sometimes when it dries, it just looks a little weird. Do you, do you think it's part of the, the necessity of that display, or do you kind of do it without the... Uh, assistance of the uh, fake blood and the gore
0: i think it depends um we haven't done our field dressing station for world war ii yet but at world war one events we have guys in the units that really love to participate when they come up to our casualty clearing station and you know sometimes it's it's cool to wrap a bandage around them and do a thing like that but sometimes we'll have guys that put some fake blood on something i think it adds to it You know, sometimes it doesn't need to always be there, but I definitely think it adds something on in certain occasions.
2: Yeah, I think if it's done tastefully, I mean, I've seen photos where it just looks like, you know, it's World War Two. And I understand they're trying to get the point across of of Gore and all that. But when it looks like it's a Civil War first aid tent, it's just blood, 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 blood all over the place. It kind of just it almost looks more Hollywood and kind of takes away from the quality of the impression sometimes I feel.
0: Yeah, completely. I, I think it's I think it's good to have it to a certain point,
2: but you know, not 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 overdone by any means. A few episodes back, I had a um, recently retired from the um, army. He's a vet and um, a living historian. He actually started doing living history at sixteen. His name's Eric Hauser, and the event last year in Georgia was one of the first events he participated in since getting out of the service, and he decided he really wasn't ready or had no interest in participating in the tactical because we actually had a 40 we had a four hour long eight mile tactical event out at this boy scout camp and then at the end of the day it. we were able to incorporate a 45 minute public event so that was great it really got everybody who i only like to do tacticals i like to you know everybody was happy because we we're able to do this but he you yeah. know he decided he wasn't ready to carry a rifle and go out and do the bang bang stuff but he wanted to do the casualty clearing stations and the mobile, you know, first aid. But one of the things he did to incorporate the history into the tactical event, which I have been to a lot of events, I've never seen anything. And because obviously he did a lot of research while in the army, he had the um, kind of the path for doing this stuff. But basically what he did is he researched the um, battalion, the platoons that we were representing at this event. And he has actually looked up, the names of the casualties from the real events. And then he went cool. and created toe tags and then a brief subscri- uh, description of what that person went through, what where they got wounded, what day in this net. And, and so when you're out there doing your tactical and you take your hit and you go back to the aid station to sit down for 10, 15 minutes, when you came back, he actually gave you, here's your card with the name of the, the real person, what day they you know were casually, whether they died or, they, or not. And so even though you're doing a tactical event, here's somebody who took the time to print up these cool cards and a nice description and you'd fold them up and you'd put them in your, uh, you know, your musette bag and you didn't think of it too much at the moment. But when you got home, you're unpacking stuff, you got, you know, if you took four or five hits, you had four of these things or four or five of them. And it was really kind of cool to see somebody went through the extra effort. And, you know, we all say we're doing this to preserve history. Well, what a better way to preserve history than the person who's running the clearing station to give you some history of someone who actually took a casualty or, you know, sadly died during the event in which you're represent representing and it was really something cool and um I don't know, I just I really enjoyed what he did and I kinda hope more people kinda considered doing that sort of thing.
0: Oh, completely. I mean stuff like that is really what makes it so surreal and just it's it's just that's what we need more of. You know, I think that is so important and such a it's such a moment where it's such a humbling moment to get something like that and realize you know, you have this person's name and their story and you're keeping that alive. And that's the biggest part of this is trying to keep everything alive and remember.
2: Yeah, because I think, I think a lot, a lot of people are, when it comes to this stuff, you know, yes, there are the people who are really into logistics and the dates and the troop movements and all that. But I think a majority of us, at least early on when we first get interested in this stuff, is we, we're really more into the firsthand accounts. We like the, the biographies, or the autobiographies. It's easier Definitely. to maintain attention or even give a damn when you sit there and say wow this isn't hollywood this isn't this really happened to this guy this person exists here's a photo of this person here's a photo of this person at home with his mom before he went on leave before he shipped out after boot camp and yeah and you know after a while you do enough of these events where you know you show up you sit around your bivouac you talk to the public you go out run around and, and do a ta- uh, a public display for 45 minutes you go back sit in your tent you you go to sleep, get up, rinse, and repeat. After a while, it, it you kind of start to get complacent, where it something as simple as a toe tag or a history of someone who got shot at the you know the real battle of the event you're portraying. It kind of oh yeah, this is why we got into this to begin with.
0: Exactly, exactly, yeah.
2: One of the other things I like to ask living historians and reenactors who come on the podcast is, and sometimes I don't, I'm not trying to bait you or. Put you in a corner, but I just like to get people's initial thoughts, and that is where do you think reenacting is right now, and where would you like to see it go in the future?
0: Um, I personally think that reenacting is at a pretty good balance, at least for the women's side of things, with you know, there's a balance of tactical, where you know, we don't really participate in those, but I think there's a good balance of the full immersion tactical stuff and then the have a display educate the public kind of thing which is a little bit more you know my role in things because I won't I women weren't frontline or anything um, for British and American at least and I would definitely like to see more more events where it's very out there and can kind of show women in action instead of just where we are at a table and kind of educating. I think that's really cool, but more ways that we can do demonstrations and kind of really live it. If that makes sense.
2: Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, cause kind of like I was saying earlier, if, if you're, if you're a young lady or who's involved in this or, or getting into this and you kind of feel like your options are limited, just because you're an American doesn't mean you have to do an American impression if you want to, or, you know, the, the French resistance that everybody seems to do. If you, if you want to get a little more action or broaden your horizons and learn more history about women's contribution to the war effort, there's plenty of other countries and plenty of other women to choose from. So, you know, broaden your horizons. And, and like you said earlier, that stuff is so greatly underrepresented that, you just do some research, find, you know, even if it's one particular woman or group of women who did something that you are surprised that you hadn't heard about before, that's the stuff you want to bring, shine the light on because then it gets more people interested and and gets more people who share the same mind state as you do to get involved. Exactly. One of the other things I suggest to people and, you know, it de- obviously it's going to depend on where you live and if you're getting starting in, and getting into this event is to try to find a local uh, connection to your town or to your city state. And especially if you're trying to, like you were saying, start an event in your town or your region, if you find the local ties, it's a lot easier to one, get the, the community to sign off on. But two, um, you always have the chance of someone who knew somebody who was in that group or, during that thing that you're representing that say, Hey, my great grandfather was there or, you know, it's, I don't know. I think if people find things a lot more interesting, if they can tie a connection to it.
0: Completely. I I think the, one of the most important things in the hobby is networking and meeting people and making these connections.
2: I would imagine that the, uh, the women's side of this, because there's, You know, obviously in comparison, so few of you compared to the men that you guys probably don't have to deal with half of the nonsense that like a lot of the guys who are getting into the hobby have to deal with as far as the Farb fest pages and, and the non-constructive criticism. And, you know, this is another topic I don't want to beat people to the head with because it comes up quite often on here. It's just, I just see people it's. I just, it's not even actually, sadly, it's not just World War II people. Have you ever joined like a group on Facebook or on Instagram, whether it's um, Parrot Owners United or I like Bangle Cats or whatever? And then there's always the people who are part of that group just because they're not so much interested in sharing their knowledge and helping you with your animal or your hobby. They just want to try to prove that they know more than anybody else in the group. And it's just at a certain point, like, why am I even here?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's very difficult because I do know plenty of women, including myself, that have been, you know, had a comment made that wasn't necessarily in a more constructive way or something like that. And I know plenty of guys that have had the same thing. Um, I just, I really try to avoid all of the negativity as much as I can. I personally feel, you know, what's the point in researching all this? if you're not going to share it with people and help people that are new and just asking questions or, you know, want because they, they want to better themselves and have the best impression they can. So I'm always happy to help. And yeah, I just, I really don't like any of the criticism when, when it's there, but you, you end up with that in most, most everything you do.
2: Yeah. We, uh, I have three rescued parrots and I remember when I joined up. A- parrot rescue facebook page and talking about diet and lightness and, and that and it's like no matter what you do there's going to be the people on there that make you feel like you're the world's worst pet owner it's like why am i even doing this and and when it comes to the, like the FARB fest pages and stuff what bothers me is and i know a few people on there who i've been to events with and when they're around the bivouac or they're at the event they act like they're everybody's best friend. And then like three days later, you see them posting pictures of people, you know, people, you know, they know that they were sitting down talking to that. They couldn't take aside side, and say, Hey, so-and-so did, you know, you need to work on this, this, and this, or that's not the, you know, we're doing Guadalcanal and that canteen covered it and come out until Tarawa, things like that. Instead of doing that, offering up critic- constructive criticism or, you know, knowledge and history instead of, you know they're all friends and with them and then 2 days later they're posting pictures that they shot of them at the event and just slam them. It's like you're with yeah. them all weekend, why wouldn't you instead of trying to get likes and, you know, comments on a crappy Facebook page, why if you're going to sit there and b- pretend like you're friends and cool with them in life, why go and slam them behind a keyboard? And that to me is more that, that to me is more bothersome than just, you know, laughing at you know, goofy pictures of people from, you know, across the pond, but it's when you see the people you actually know and you see them posting photos of people you both know, that's when it's just like, come on, what are we doing?
0: Exactly. And I, I, I think that it's different when you know that person would rather someone just tell them because they, they could have just had a source that was wrong. They just, they genuinely may not know. And I personally know if I was doing something wrong, I would want someone in a constructive way to just mention it to me and just try to help me out because they're just trying to help and help me be the best I can be and tearing someone down on Facebook is going to do the complete opposite and they may never want to reenact again and may just feel terrible. So I, I definitely am all for constructive criticism, but not the far best kind of thing that's, that's happening.
2: How many events do you guys usually have up there uh, per season in West Virginia?
0: Well, we don't have you know we did we did our one event, but all of the events that I do are Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, that kind of thing. And if I think about it, I probably do like eight a year. i'm I'm starting to do more as I add more impressions and things, but i'm I'm at about eight a year right now.
2: Sadly, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, but I didn't get into reenacting until I moved down here to the southern tip of Florida. So obviously, Connie is on my bucket list. But when you're down here, obviously, when you got all that equipment and rifles and all that, it's just flying up there becomes a whole ordeal. And then driving, it's like, well, i got to take an extra three days off of work just for travel time. And But I know that everybody has the same issues, and it's nothing to really complain about. But I'm hoping either this year or next year to get up there. I really wanted to go last year, obviously, for the 75th. But uh, mm-hmm. that one is on my bucket list. I will say that the fine people when we did the uh, 75th anniversary of Tarawa in Fort Morgan, Alabama, That kind of helped quench my thirst because we did, we were originally scheduled to have two landing crafts out there, but because of the Hurricane Matthew a few months prior, uh, one of the other landing crafts was unable to get out of dry dock and get insured and pass inspection in time to be Uh seaworthy. And so we only had one, but it did check that off the bucket list of actually riding in a landing craft and making an amphibious landing. And, um, you know, it's one thing when you're doing a Marine Corps impression and you're walking around and you're, you know, duck diving, crawling and all that stuff in the woods. But it's another thing when you're walking through waist deep water and you actually have the sand and the you seaweed and all that stuff on you and you're doing live fire yeah. you know, shooting from the beach. It definitely makes things a lot more uh more realistic.
0: Definitely. I mean I mean my friends that uh that get to do the landing craft and the beach at um Colonia, they just tell me the the first time they Stepped off onto the beach. It was just such a surreal experience. It's like you're there. It's just, you know,
2: it's it's just really neat. Her name's Stella Kapler. She is a uh, dedicated living historian of all uh, eras, but primarily World War II. Um, you can find her on Instagram and Facebook. Where can people find you? Hand out your uh, if you're interested. At least I know you have your Instagram page. Right? You're a, a damn up to five thousand people. Congratulations on that. Where can people find you?
0: Um, Instagram is where I'm at primarily right now. Um, I'm hoping to eventually branch out into YouTube, but for now just Instagram and that's just Stella Kapler.
2: And I would assume you're open for, um, if any, um, women are interested in getting into the hobby or interested in improving their current impression, uh, they could probably reach out to you and, uh, get some help that way.
0: Most definitely.
2: Thank you, Estella. Stay healthy, and uh, thanks for everything you do, and we will talk to you soon.
0: Of course. Thank you for having me.
1: This has been a Digital 410 production.